Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 185 with my guest, Desiree L. Stage. This episode is sponsored by uh, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Uh, I want to let you guys know, uh, support the American uh, Foundation for Suicide Prevention uh, by donating at www.chicagowalk.org and help prevent suicide. If you are uh, in the Chicagoland area, uh, join them in person for Out of the Darkness Chicagoland Community Walk. Details, donations, and registration information at www.chicagowalk.org. Uh, support suicide prevention by giving a donation. Chicagowalk.org. That's chicagowalk.org. And uh, the walk is scheduled for September 20th. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. Honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions past traumas, and sexual dysfunction, to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Go there, join the forum. We've got a bazillion different subject threads started there. Uh, and if you don't see one that you uh, want to post about and you'd like to see one created, um, just shoot us an email, and we'll see if we can do that. You can also read blogs on the website. You can fill out surveys. You can see how other people responded to surveys. Um, and you can support the show financially by going to the website. Um, the show today is very, very light on surveys because my brain feels like a piece of Swiss cheese. And I don't know I, I don't know if it's my brain or my soul feels like a piece of Swiss cheese, but... Um, I, you know, the, the, the night before I put the, the, the way that I, I do the show is I record people sometimes months in advance. Um, and then, you know, I post shows on Thursday nights and Wednesday night is usually the night that I pick the episode I'm going to use 
and I play it back and I edit out any stuff I want to edit out. Um, and then on Thursday night, before I put it up, I do the intros and the outros and I pick the surveys to read. I print them out and I arrange them in the order I want to read them. And um, tonight is the night where I print out the surveys and am supposed to read them. And I just, I don't know, as I was reading the surveys, uh, well, it started off by I was going through the, the, the awfulsome moment surveys and the happy moment surveys. And there just, um, there just wasn't a lot there that, that was striking me as stuff that I wanted to read. And, uh, and then I started reading other surveys and, my brain just feels like it's just like just like grinding to a halt and all of a sudden I just felt like oh my god I don't know if I can do the podcast tonight I'm just feeling and it's not physically tired it's mentally tired I just feel mentally tired and the first thought that came into my mind is well of course you idiot you've been playing this iPad game five hours a day every day for the last two weeks. Some days you're playing it until the sun comes up. But it's the only thing that's been bringing me excitement. Uh, in fact, right now I got a game paused that, that I want to get back to where I'm Rome and I've got some good resources going. But, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not Rome. I'm England and Rome is in, they're threatening to win. And, and I just can't wait to get in there and and you know what I think it is? It's because it stimulates my intellect and then I don't have to feel any emotions that I'm feeling and I don't know what it is that I'm running from. And this is one of the things I've learned being in support groups and therapy and stuff is um, you don't have to know what it is exactly that you're running from or you're not wanting to feel. You just have to be aware that you're you're escaping um, a little too much. And I don't, I don't think video games are unhealthy at all. I think they can be awesome. Um, but, you know, sometimes I'm playing them seven hours at a time, and and I think it's taken its toll, and I'm sorry if those of you that love the surveys on the podcast um, aren't going to get to hear as many tonight. Um, I know that is a fellow person that deals with brain and emotion issues, you completely understand. So um, look at that. I, I pulled up short of an apology. Look at me fucking patting myself on the back, dusting myself off, pulling myself up by my bootstraps and any other 800-year-old cliche that's been around. I want to read this email from a listener who writes, uh, do you believe, and, and I don't, I can't remember if she wanted me to use a, a, a fake name or not, so I'm just going to, uh, I'll call her, I don't know, Carolyn. Um, she writes, do you believe that some people can be so fucked up and broken that they're beyond help. I've had multiple suicide attempts. I've been fighting depression for 15 years. I've been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. If I make another attempt, it will surely be my last. I'm at that place now, and it's never been this dark before. Um, oh, and she writes, please let me remain anonymous. So I'm glad I gave her a, a pseudonym. And I wrote back to her and I said, I believe that anyone who is conscious that they have a problem is not beyond help. And when I think of you know, the quote-unquote hopeless cases, I think of people who can't see that they are dealing with a mental illness or an emotional issue. That being said, 
I think part of learning to live with mental illness is being patient with ourselves while we heal and find help. And it's not like going to the doctor for an infection. It's a lot of, of hit or miss. Uh, there's confusion, there's frustration, but our overall movement is forward. And perfectionism can be a terrible enemy in trying to heal and gain stability. So be patient with yourself. And, you know, we can even be in that place right now where where we don't know that we're dealing with a mental illness or an emotional issue. For years, I didn't understand that that's what I was dealing with. But eventually, enough information stacks up and we're be, we're made aware that oh okay i have an issue here that i need to work on i can't blame the world on this anymore um but like i said i think there are some people that they will never say this is something that i personally need to need to work on so that's that's my two cents so basically i think oh who gives a shit i just fucking bored myself um and I just want to read one struggle in a sentence. This 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 uh, person named Evelyn about her depression. She writes, My chronic depression is my invisible conjoined twin. With me at birth, with me until death, I fucking hate her. Oh God, I wish I didn't need to take meds. Flat out fucking auditory hallucinations. I would literally wake up running from my bed. I'm afraid that I'll pass my anger on to my son. I thought the gunman was my father. Afraid of not being able to make a living. Um, that's probably going to break his heart if he hears it, but that's that's the truth. They committed him to Bellevue. There was this fear that if I feel this pain, I wish someone could see what was going on and just help me, that it will kill me and I will die and I will drown. You can't think your way out of a thinking problem. And I cried the way that a baby cries. I cried like an animal. It makes me so mad at myself that I do that. The burden of perfectionism. And that's when I got to therapy. Let's talk about that. So I was like, fuck it, I'm alive. I don't give a shit about anything. You are a shining example of what is best about human beings. I'm worried that the uh, Russian militia is coming over the hill. I know that, uh, but uh, Alice, how you feeling? I'm pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> like I'm here with uh, Desiree L. Stage, who assures me that that is not a made-up name. That is actually her name. That's true. She is a photographer. She is a uh, suicide prevention advocate. She lives in Brooklyn with her girlfriend, and she's here visiting L.A. We've been trying to make this happen for like a year. How, how did we first... Uh, and, and you are a suicide survivor. You, yeah, uh, you suicide attempted, attempt survivor. Suicide attempt survivor. Mm-hmm. Not to be confused with band members of the group Survivor. That's a completely <laughs> different, though sad in their own way. Right. I have no idea. <laughs> terrific guys. I think didn't they do Eye of the Tiger? That song from uh, from Rocky. You're so much younger than Was me. That I'm so embarrassed for myself right now. And old people. I don't people. remember who did it. Yeah, there's Survivor. I Was should this? know that. Dun, 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 dun. Oh, I know the song. Oh, okay. I know. <laughs> rising up whoa <laughs> so um how how did we first come in contact were we recommended were we introduced to each other my friend Kristen told you about me and you emailed me yeah she, mm. yeah that's right she said desiree would be a good um a good guest she yeah. advocates f- advocates for um this issue and she be willing to talk about our own personal stuff as well yep. yeah where's a good place to uh oh, to start you know right before we started rolling <laughs> you you were saying that you just got interviewed 
by the New York Times uh, mm-hmm. for a piece that probably by the time this airs, it will have already been on the the, the New York Times. Tell me, yeah. tell me what you were what you were saying. <laughs> and you uh, felt like you were you didn't want to mention this because you felt like oh maybe I'm throwing the Times under the bus. But I was like, yeah. no, I think I would have asked the question that that they asked. It's not just the Times; it's everyone. Um, but but the the idea was that I was asked about the method in which I tried to kill myself. And my feelings on that are, aside from the fact that it's unethical um, in terms of the American Association of Suicidology's media reporting guidelines, it's uncomfortable, it's sensationalistic, it doesn't really contribute to any sort of productive conversation. Um, It's not a secret, but, you know, uh, we read enough of that in the media who tried to kill themselves recently? I don't know. Paris uh, Jackson. You know, we know everything about what she did, but we're not talking about how we could have recognized the signs, what to do when someone's in a suicidal crisis, what to do afterwards, what are the resources. We just focus on how they try to do it, how gory was it. You know, I would agree with you if that was the focus of it. But yeah. I think if you're if you're asking all those other questions, I do think that there and this is just my opinion. I'm mm-hmm. just a jackass that tells dick jokes. But <laughs> but there is, you know, when a friend of mine took her life, um, she used a very large size handgun. Mm. And that said something mm-hmm. about her self-hatred because right. women normally don't use guns and That's they true. don't use huge caliber guns right. on themselves. Yeah. And that was a, a, a peek into her state of mind. Yeah. So I. I do want to know, I certainly don't want to make the person uncomfortable mm. who's answering that that question, um, but I feel like I can get a better picture of what that person's um, state was. But right. I agree with you, if that's all it is, that if that's the only thing you talk about, that's insulting. Yeah. Because it's like, you're not... You're just entertainment for me. You're not a human being who is in pain. Exactly. And I don't really care about the other people who may be in that place right now until they do something that's going to entertain me. Exactly. In terms of that, I mean, I guess it's it's the language that is used along with it. You know, this is a dark and stormy night. So and so use some, you know, it, it's just kind of it's kind of crazy. But if we could scale back and use objective language, um, then I wouldn't mind sharing these these things but when it becomes oh she took pills and this and that it's uh it's just a little much you know especially when it's not being paired with with those those tools like the the resources um talking about what was your emotional state what were the triggers that happened exactly what was your childhood like is there a history of mental illness in your family um were you had you been drinking right you know was there an addiction that Mm -hmm. has gotten the best of you um And we also have trouble. We try to pinpoint it on one thing. And that's never, you know, that's never, never true. There are, it's, it's a catalyst. One thing could be a catalyst, but there are so many mitigating factors that contribute to this problem. And that's why I always say, you know, when somebody wants to blame themselves for somebody else's suicide, nobody can ever blame somebody else for, for their suicide. People have endured all kinds of, of things in the history of the world, mm-hmm. um, and that doesn't mean it didn't contribute maybe to that person's feeling that the world is too much, but um it's that's just my opinion on right. it is that you you can't especially like when when p- 
people break up and somebody oh God, yeah. throws that card out there that I, I can't live without you and then maybe that person kills themselves. That person's problems were so much deeper than a failed relationship. Exactly. And that's just that's anger being directed outward, but that's not the cause. And it's the ultimate act of passive aggression. Yeah. You know, that's a real fuck you. It, it, it is. It, yeah. Um so let's talk about your your story, your childhood, your um, your issues. What? Uh, give me some broad strokes. What are the? Tell me that, about your issues. What are, what are the some of the broad strokes of the issues that you struggle with today? Oh, the broad strokes. Um, so let's see. Where do I start? I guess a good place to start would be that when I was growing up as a teenager, I lived with um someone who had a crack addiction in my family, and that resulted in a lot of violence in my home. Um. And I remember, you know, I'm going to high school for the first time and the police cars are outside my house all the time because he's being taken in for 72 hour psychiatric holds. And the neighbors are all outside of the house being like, what's happening? What's going on? Um, and you were how old at this point? 14. But it, I mean, it started it started so much earlier than that. I, I can't. It's hard to place it uh, in a lot of ways. Are it you, was traumatic. Are for you me. comfortable sharing uh, what what family member it was? Was it somebody who was in charge of you, or a uh, uh, somebody? No. Okay. Right. No, it was it was one of my uncles. I I was raised by my entire family in a lot of ways. Uh, I lived with my grandparents until I turned eighteen. My mom, my uncles were in and out. We had a big house, so it was kind of like whoever needs a place, <laughs> we're yeah. all here. Where were your parents? Uh, we grew up in my or I grew up in Miami. So my mom was my mom was with me. Um, but my dad, they were divorced. Oh, I see. Uh, your mom lived with you with your grandparents. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, the bulk of the emotional nurturing and guiding, was that done by your mom or your grandparents? All of the above. When okay. I when I refer to my parents, I'm referring to three people. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's kind of cool. I love it. It's, it's yeah. you know, they all... They all came from different places, and they were very nurturing, very caring, very encouraging, especially in terms of my education, because I was a, a first-generation college student. I was one of the only ones in my family who even graduated from high school. So, And would they let you know how, how proud of you they were? Yeah. Yeah. Um, they still do. <laughs> They're it very sounds, good about it that. sounds like you got, still got a good relationship with your oh, yeah. mom and your grandparents. Are your They're grandparents my best friends. still around? Yeah. Yeah, they're still around. Um, my family, they were in Miami until 2007, and now they're sort of broken up a little, which has been incredibly depressing for me, but they're still around. They're very supportive. They're my best friends. Yeah. Yeah. I call them all the time. Well, Siblings? I have two half-brothers. Well, they're not even half-brothers. They're my brothers. Yeah. <laughs> Gen genetically half-brothers. Yeah, genetically, but there's no there's no differentiation there. They're both teenagers. That's obnoxious. <laughs> And how old are you? I'm 30. So okay. we have a, was it almost a 13 year age gap between me and, and the oldest of my so two brothers. So you did some babysitting and kind of raising them, huh? Mm -hmm. Up until I left, I left uh, home the day after I graduated high school. So they had me for a little while and then I wasn't around too much. What did you learn about little boys when you were uh, in there? Because you didn't have any brothers before that, right? I didn't. That's a, that's a, um, a good peek into, um, because they're when they're younger than 
13 or 14, mm. there isn't that self-consciousness yet. So they're kind of oh my God. really just letting who they are fly. It's true. My little, my youngest brother, he's going to hate me for this. Hopefully he never listens to it. But he used to, he used to do the man dance completely naked. He'd stand in front of the TV if he wanted your attention and be like, dah, 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 and like wiggle. With his penis flapping around. It was insane. <laughs> and my other brother, the older one, has just always been very quick-witted. He's always got something. He's hilarious. Yeah. So, boys. <laughs> they're, they're a handful, I imagine. You know, my brother and I could be a, a real a real handful. You know, thankfully, we had friends growing up. Our, I grew up on this little cul-de-sac where there was just a shitload of kids all mm -hmm. in the same age range. Mm -hmm. And we lived on the border of a forest preserve. Mm -hmm. And so it was, the door would open at nine o'clock in the morning and we were free to go do whatever we want, same. And whatever our imagination was. And we'd come home in time for dinner. And Oh uh, God, in the summer, you stayed out till nine ten at night it was awesome i mean if <laughs> shit could be blown up or burned or you know whatever um that's that's what we went out and yeah and did so you you got um there was a learning experience i would imagine then yeah about the the opposite sex at uh at that yeah. age yeah or did I you mean, have male friends i had i did grow up with boys it was a very similar experience um my my neighborhood was just filled with kids my age. Um, so we were out there, you know, depending on what season it was, we were playing football, we were playing basketball, kickball. I mean, there's no season the for best. that. But, you know, in the summer, we were playing manhunt, which is a fancy version of hide-and-go-seek, I guess. Uh -huh. um, so the, you beat the person with a pipe when you find them. <laughs> That's it's, the video game. It raises the stakes. <laughs> <laughs> no, we didn't do all that, but... But yeah, I mean, I had my first cigarette with these kids. We did all kinds of stuff together. Um, and I moved away when I was 17, so that was... Where'd you move to? I, I just moved further south, but, you know, it was gone. And I, I switched schools, too, my senior year for a couple of reasons. But, um, yeah, I missed them after that because, I mean, we were... From the time we were three or four. Your family moved with you? Yeah. Okay. We... We moved from the house that I grew up in. My parents, they're, my grandparents, there are pictures of uh, my grandmother with the first few blocks of the house as it was being built. Uh, so that was, even that was traumatic for me, you know, mm -hmm. leaving this place that held all of my memories. Um, but we moved, yeah, we moved maybe 15 minutes further south. Oh, so you could still go back and visit and see those friends. Yeah, yeah. but I never did. Yeah. I've seen them. I've seen a couple of them in the past couple of years, but give me some snapshots from your childhood that kind of informed the person you are. Jesus today. <laughs> Jesus was not actually one of those snapshots. <laughs> if you can, if you can think of any. Oh God. Um, I don't know. I was always kind of a bookworm. My grandmother used to uh, yell at me, tell me I was being lazy because I was always lying around reading books. Um, I really liked Stephen King when I was a kid. And Do you have a favorite book of his? Yeah, I actually just read it a couple of years ago, or when it came out, eleven twenty two sixty three. It's not, it's not horror based. It's a, a kind of a s historical time travel sort of thing about. It's the day Kennedy was assassinated. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It was about what hap what would happen if you went back and changed that day in history. Um, oh, what a great premise. I love it. And it's got an incredible love story in the middle of it, too, because, you know, I'm a loser. I like those. Um, 
And then I started reading the Dark Tower series recently, too, and I can see he started writing that 30 years ago. And I can see how he was pulling from these ideas in the Dark Tower series to make this book several years later. He wanted to write 112263 since since right after Kennedy was assassinated. But uh how does he not have carpal tunnel? Seriously, he's a machine. Every year. I don't even know. I think I think he writes on the way to mail a manuscript. I think yeah. he's typing in the car with one hand. He has to be. He has to be. Um so you you something w- about his writing really connected with when you. I was a kid, yeah. I mean, I just loved horror. Now I don't read horror at all, at all. I read nonfiction or I read lyrical things like Jeanette Winterson. Um, my girlfriend makes fun of me because I read every Jeanette Winterson book ever, and sometimes over and over. Um, so that was that was a, a big a big part of my childhood was reading, and then I was really into extracurriculars in the fifth grade. I think I was uh, playing music, which was a mainstay in my life for a long time in the astronomy club, in the computer club. I was doing the announcements on the the TV, the school TV in the mornings. Um, I don't know. Anything you could do. So you were, you were a little intellectual. I guess. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> I was a nerd. But it sounds like you weren't too isolated, like you had people that yeah. related to you. Um, or it, was that more so your first home? I think that in some ways I was kind of not aloof, but just kind of in, in my head somewhere because I don't think I was ever popular, but I don't, I didn't really realize it until middle school, until high school. So I don't then, know where then, I was. And then what that. was the realization? Uh, yeah, the realization was that I just, I was different. Um, and yeah, it started coming around in middle school because band geeks are band geeks. And I was really, really involved in, in playing an instrument. Um, and learning that, and I cared about that. I wanted to be a musician when I grew up. What was your instrument? I played the flute, the piccolo. I did the oboe briefly, the bassoon briefly. Good Lord. I like playing music. And it's funny, because I haven't played music since I was 17 now. Um, But that was when it first started coming around. And then when I hit high school, and this thing with my uncle was happening, and depression was first starting to kick in. I have a all over my maternal side, just depression, depression, depression. And then I found out when I was 21 that my dad was bipolar. So I got that fun gene. Sweet. Yes. But, um, so that started happening and then I started questioning my sexuality. It was just this big ball of craziness. Um, that's a lot of, that's a lot of gray to throw at a, all at one time at a kid. <laughs> Who am I sexually? Oh, God. Yeah. You got the, the you know the the ruminating thoughts of a, a a depressed person who can't understand why they're feeling the way they feel. Yeah. W- was the bipolar would would there be um, moments of mania or did you mostly experience it as um the lows? Well, um the th- the thing with bipolar is that most of the time you're misdiagnosed as depressive until you hit your 20s. Uh so I was just depressed for yeah, I think I was diagnosed when I was 21. Um, but I never saw anyone about it until I was 18 or 19 because I was in college. I had two girlfriends at the same time. I don't, don't even, but (laughs) I started to have these. Were you hiding them from each other? No, no. It was a a three-way thing. Oh, okay. I don't know how I did that. I could never do that now, but I started having these fits of rage and 
I would lock myself in the bathroom because I was afraid that I was going to hurt someone. And I had been a cutter for, I think I started cutting when I was 14 uh, to deal with all of that crap that I was just talking about. But I would, I would hide because I didn't know what to do. I'd never felt that before. And that, that was kind of when I started seeing a doctor, uh, seeing a therapist. And the sad thing was, is that I went to my general practitioner and he was like, are you sad? Do you sleep a lot? Here's some medication. And, you know, in retrospect, that's a bad plan. <laughs> How so? It's just, it's so... Because it's, it's, it's... We're just throwing pills at people yeah. uh, without knowing what will work. You know, it's... I have feelings about that. I, I do, too. I feel like meds should be the last option, mm-hmm. but should always be an option. Because for some people, myself included, uh, I would be dead without yep. meds. I absolutely know it. And But yep. there's a checklist of all the other things that I need to do. And I will occasionally try going off meds to see if this Ooh. new thing I added, you know, meditation or mm-hmm. whatever, might be enough. And I always have to go back on them. But yeah. I agree with you in in that respect. You know, I think a good GP should say, have you have you had talk therapy? Ask more What's your questions. diet like? Are you exercising? Mm-hmm. Um, do you have a support network, an emotional right. support network? Is there an addiction that I don't know about? Yeah. Have you ever been sexually abused? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, et cetera, et cetera. And they don't do that. What, what questions other than those would you have liked that GP to ask before giving you the meds? Are you suicidal? <laughs> um, well, wouldn't, of, wouldn't that have made him push him faster towards you? It might have, or he pushed me in the, into the hospital. Um, I think those are all really valid questions. I, I, God, if we could get them to ask five of those questions, you know, that would give us a better idea of what's going on. Because uh, right now, general practitioners are the ones who are doing most of the prescribing of medication, and they are not trained. They're not mental health professionals. Honestly, I feel like they should not be allowed to prescribe this medication. I don't know if I can disagree with that. You know, it's uh, I think some of them are probably in capable hands, but I think we need to worry about the ones that don't really understand it. You know, so having done this show, I realize so much of people's depression, etc. can be traced to physical or emotional abandonment by parents in childhood whether conscious or not on the part of that on the part of that parent the parents could have even been there present in the home but there were there the child didn't see feel seen or felt or heard and that is enough to set somebody up for for something and a lot of and a lot of headway can be made i think in processing yeah unresolved stuff yeah that's a trauma you know you don't have to be physically physically assaulted for it to be a trauma emotional abuse is a very real thing indifference by a parent is Mm -hmm. a trauma it is uh yeah i had a thought and then i lost it (laughs) i like to what i like to do is i like to yak until uh, my guests lose their train of thought and then that way i remain in control yes and i stroke my beard my long svengali like beard (laughs) i want to get a svengali beard and then tie it in knots like those guys that uh, that do now I kind of wish you had one. I yeah? Mean, yeah. I'm like, I want to see it happening. <laughs> uh, so what What would, if you could go back in a time machine and you're in that doctor's office, what would you have said to him? It, it, let's say he says, you know, what's going on with you? Fill, fill me in. What would you have said? What would I have said to him? 
Well, it's funny. I have too much perspective now, but uh, I think I would have said, you know, I have these these issues with rage. This is terrifying. I don't know what's happening in my head. I feel like something is terribly, terribly wrong. Um, I mean, I was cutting myself to ribbons. It's what do you do with that? It's terrifying to be in that body doing that and, and having that adapting that as a coping mechanism or rather not not adapting. I don't know. Yeah. Um, and was it a secret? Did other people know you were cutting? Some of my friends knew. Uh, I never. Were you emotionally cutting yourself is picking yourself apart as well? Oh, yeah. That's a, I'm you good at that. You weren't brimming with self-esteem? No. No, I was a goth kid. What goth kid has self-esteem? <laughs> they do when they listen to the Smiths, but outside of oh, that. I can't listen to the Smiths anymore. Just after. brings you back. It's one of those breakup, breakup kind of bands, and now I'm like, nope. I listen to them a lot after my suicide attempt, so now I'm just like, no, thank you. Don't need no Morrissey. I'm good. <laughs> the ever-upbeat Morrissey. Oh, God. I can't deal with him. Um, so what else would you have said to this? I, I'm feeling rage. I don't know what's going on in my head. Um, would you have said I'm ashamed that I cut? At that, would I? I don't know if I would have said that at that point. Was it kind of a badge of honor? Like I'm a, I'm edgy? No, no. Cause I didn't show it off. I didn't, I didn't want anyone to see it. And most of the time they didn't. Um, but it was just. It was what I knew to deal with my pain. And now, you know, it's so, it's one of those things I get so squicked out about. I see anything on TV that re- re- bleh, that looks like a knife to flesh. I can't, I can't deal with it. I have to turn away. And my girlfriend's like, okay, it's okay now. You know, like when it's over. Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> um, what does yeah. that feel like when she does that? It's nice. It's, she cares about me, you know. I mean, she, that's beautiful. That, it is. That she sees you yeah and she knows i mean she's she's seen me go through some of this now too i had a a suicidal depression last june and it was just this awful scary thing um and i you know it's not good to be on the inside of that but i don't imagine it's any better to be on the other side it might even be scarier yeah because i would imagine for that that loved one they have less information than than you do yeah they and they're going to be the one that's left behind. Exactly. I mean, with this particular depression, it was very much like, I am suicidal. I don't want to be suicidal. I want I want to be safe. How can we make that happen? So your care had not evaporated. That's the scary right. part is when you stop caring. Exactly. That you're suicidal. Exactly. So you still had that to cling to. Yeah. There was one day when... I was standing, I was going to do an interview for my project, actually, which in retrospect, I should not have been doing, but... Um, and the project is called Live Through This, and, and Desiree photographs people yeah. who are survivors of suicide attempts. Yeah. They're beautiful, by the way. Thank you. Um, yeah, we can talk about that more. Uh, yeah. But I was I was getting ready to cross the street, and I was so out of it, and so in my head, that I almost got hit by a car, not once, but twice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> We're not learning things here, yeah. uh, but that was really scary. And then to to prove that there's even more love there, my girlfriend, she was scared, but she called my therapist. She said, we need, we need a phone meeting. I need to get her in there. What do I do? Um, 
And then later she came to the therapist with me a couple of times. And I had been off medication for seven years at that point because I was having just bad, bad reactions to antidepressants. And I was like, fuck this. Um, Side effects, you mean? Yeah. 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 It's just stupid, stupid things that made me feel awful. And then when they finally, this was back when I was 23, they eventually, they put me on Paxil and it sent me through the roof. So they're like, oh, duh, you're bipolar put me on a mood stabilizer to go with it so it took the highs away but left the lows so i was just depressed zombie like yeah and after that i was like well i'm not doing this anymore i'm gonna find a way to to kind of make it better for me on my own and and by the way that's a really common thing that people experience mm -hmm. and it's one of the reasons why I say keep trying, keep talking to your psychiatrist, keep trying different combinations. The Dead Sea Scroll list of meds that I yeah. have tried in, in my lifetime is gigantic, but I have had bouts where meds are working right. with a minimum of side effects. So many people can get there. Yeah. Um, so I want to I want to stress I want to stress that that it's not everybody isn't going to be a zombie. Yeah. Um, and meds do tend to do tend to discover new ones that have fewer and fewer side effects. It's true. I'm kind of a Kool-Aid drinking convert at this point, uh, which is funny because I was just so anti-meds. And in a lot of ways, I still am sort of, you know, I, again, like like we were saying, I, I think it should be a last resort. Um, you know, I don't want to mess with the chemicals in my brain, but then again, you know, if it's not working properly. And it's no different um, than diabetes for, for those of us that don't have that right balance. Yeah. Um, and no attitude change is going to help you produce more serotonin that's true so might when, help attitude change might help but <laughs> i don't think it's going to it's not the only thing yes uh so when i was having this this suicidal depression my girlfriend was like look you need this isn't working you need to try something new so we talked about dbt we talked about me going to see a psychiatrist, which I was really, really resistant to. A DB is dialectical behavior therapy. Therapy, and it's a way of. Will you tell me what it is. It's just coping skills. It's giving you a toolbox um, to express short, yourself. Yeah, and to, for your loved ones to understand how to talk to you, so that yeah. when you're feeling overwhelmed, you don't fly off the handle. Right. Uh, so I did. I didn't do the DBT. I went to the psychiatrist. I talked to her. She was really fantastic. She said, hey, it looks like you're kind of resistant to antidepressants. And I was like, that's a thing? You can, what? Like, she completely validated me. So I felt really good about that. And then she, she said, meant physically resistant, not yeah. intellectually resistant to that. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, she was like, it just doesn't sound like your body responds to these things very well. And she gave me a list of three mood stabilizers that she thought might be best for me. And I said... Well, I want to do the research. I want to, I want to look at it. I want to ask questions. I want to see how other people have responded to this. And the first thing on her list was lamictal or lamotrigine. And I hate to be the person to say it saved my life, but honestly, it kind of did. That's what I take. Yeah, it's. I'm a completely different person um, in the sense that my emotions are still there. But they're not so extreme. You know, I'm not crying until 4 or 5 a.m. Uh, when I'm happy, I'm still happy, but I'm not just uh, so happy that I get irritable. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's usually a sign that there might be some mania is when you think exactly. everybody else doesn't understand that they're jealous of your happiness. Yeah. And you're talking a lot and you're making grandiose plans and you don't need yeah. sleep. Yeah, that's usually a... I mean, 
I'm not going to say I hated that because I got oh, a lot done. <laughs> it's the fucking best. Mania is the best until it's over and you see clearly what you've done and the shame sets in. Yeah, yeah. Um, We're going to pause here for a second and get a little bit of love to uh, to our sponsor, Bulu Box. That's uh, BuluBox.com, B-U-L-U-B-O-X.com. And uh, Bulu Box is a great way to discover vitamins, supplements, and nutrition products that are right for you and your body. And, uh, you know, the best way to discover if a product is right for you is to try it. So um, Bulu Box, they, they give you a chance to sample four to five vitamin, supplement, or nutrition products each month for just 10 bucks with free shipping. And um, you can you can actually get um, your first box free if you go to bluebox.com and then look for the microphone in the top left corner. Uh, click on that and then enter promo code Happy Hour. Um, so check it out. You know, a lot of people uh, you know will buy stuff in bulk and then they they get you know buy a big size of something because it looks good on the internet and they get it and they realize they don't like it. Well, Bulu Box is a great way to try a really big variety of, of things and find out what you like and what you don't like. Um, so check it out. Uh, they've got a huge selection of, uh, of things and um, it's only 10 bucks with free shipping. You can't beat it. BuluBox.com, B-U-L-U-B-O-X.com. Go to the microphone in the upper left-hand corner, click on it, and enter promo code Happy Hour. You have any any uh, gorgeous moments of post-mania shame <laughs> that you can share with us? I'm not super ashamed of it, but I mean, I have been on a stage in a club in New York, completely naked. So, what can you do? <laughs> do you owe that to mania? Probably. Okay. I think so uh, I had a. A period after I moved to New York where I was single for a long time and it was, yeah, I was up and down and up and down. My friends didn't know what the hell to do with me. They were like, you're so much fun. And then, you know, a couple months later, it was, why aren't you coming out of your house? <laughs> we miss you. Please come out. Wow. Yeah. Some big swings. Yeah. Uh, promiscuity is another thing that um, mania can uh present itself as and a lot of people don't understand maybe that that's what they're in the middle of and they think oh i'm just a you know i'm a whore or i'm slutty uh, yeah slutty <laughs> and um it's mental illness is so it is just it has so many different camouflages it really does it's the terminator it's shape-shifting it's every time you think you got a restraining order on it there's a knock at your door hi remember me yeah it's one of those things um that's why in my therapy this past year i've kind of started to feel like the dsm and diagnoses are really arbitrary at best they're very loose guidelines and, and nothing is absolute you know there yeah. are it's a it's a continuum yeah. Um, you know, I'm starting to feel like those diagnoses specifically are for insurance companies more than yeah. they are for the people who need help. I, I agree. Which makes me sad. Um, and maybe for a shorthand for professionals to talk amongst each other. Right. To get a sense of things. But, you know, bipolar and borderline disorder overlap in a lot of ways. And self-injury was only attached to borderline personality disorder for a while. And now we're seeing that non-suicidal self-injury is kind of a thing all on its own it's you know it's again it's, it's kind of i feel like it's an arbitrary structure and i've chosen to you know i'll take the label bipolar but it's the same thing i'll take the label lesbian but that doesn't mean i'm not sexually attracted to men it just means like this this is kind of a, a brief way of 
of telling you what my experience is as a human being, yeah. but it's not, it's not that black and white. Yeah. It's just not. <laughs> so where, what's the next part of, of your story? Let's, let's backtrack. Let's go back. We? Let's go back to, um, let's go back to when you were in that, in that place, when you went to that, that psychiatrist and, um, and he threw the meds at you. The he hurled them at your face. He hurled a fexer at me, and I hated everything for quite a while. Um, what happened after that? You know, it's funny. I, I really have lost a lot of those memories. It's just very generalized feelings of rage. You know, be, before we get to that, were there any snapshots I'd asked you oh, of, of from childhood or adolescence that you think have informed um, you? Or, you know, not necessarily, they don't have to be negative. It could be just something where uh, maybe a light bulb went off in your head and said, mm. you know, you had uh, maybe a little epiphany about yourself or the world or your place in it or... I don't think I had any epiphanies until I got to New York, any real big life epiphanies. But How old were you when you came out? When I came out? I kind of don't feel like I came out. I feel like other people came out for me. I, when I was 23, I had sex with a guy for the first time, and that felt more like coming out than actually coming out. It was like reverse coming out. Uh, but I was 15. Had you had uh, sex with a woman before that? Oh, yeah. I okay. lost my virginity to a girl when I was 15. Oh, okay. And... Yeah, I mean... And were you okay with it? Yeah. I. It's funny because I had to be told that I was gay. <laughs> <laughs> that needs to go on your tombstone. Right? That needed is to so be told awesome. she was gay. Uh, I don't know. I used to talk to my friends. You know, they had those party lines way back when and mm -hmm. several way chats. And one of my friends was like, I'm pretty sure you're gay. I was like, no, I like boys. What are you talking about? Um, but I couldn't connect to them emotionally, so... I was just really lonely and like, what the hell's going on? Who so. can connect to a teenage boy except uh, other teenage boys? Yeah, I mean, I can't true. imagine how how difficult and frustrating that has to be for a teenage girl that wants to make an emotional connection. God. Uh, and I know there are some boys that that can be made, but the bulk of them, I think, <laughs> at least the guys I was around, and me, right. it was just about, I just want to play sports. Right. And... I just want to get a girl naked. I'm not mm -hmm. interested in what she has to say because she's <laughs> not interested in what I'm interested in. Right. And it's, oh, I'm so glad I'm not a father. I'm so <laughs> glad I'm not a father. It would break my heart yeah, to see way, right? a daughter dating and being frustrated by trying to connect with, mm -hmm. uh, with, that, with that boy. Yeah. Yeah. So I couldn't figure out what was going on. And I, I remember my friend telling me, I'm pretty sure you're gay or you're bisexual or whatever. And I was like... I'm not averse to this, but I'm not super interested in it either. You know? uh, and then I started dating my best friend and I was like, oh, well, yeah, I, I do like this. And looking back now, I can see where I had crushes on girls growing up and I just had no idea what that was. I just really wanted to be their friend. I thought their hair was pretty. <laughs> but where did I go? Yeah. Um, so I came out when I was 15, I guess. I think my mom came out for me. She's... She's a really great spy. Um, I hope she does listen to this. <laughs> uh, but How do you mean she's a really great spy? What was I doing? I, when I was 14, I got really, really, really into the internet. AOL 3.0. <laughs> um, I love that you remember the version of it. It was crazy. It was like it blew my mind. It, it just opened up a whole new world that 
just wasn't there before. I could finally find people who were more interested in the things that I was. Uh, but I was talking, I started dating my girlfriend. I was with her for probably over a year before anyone figured anything out. Or I'm sure there was suspicion. There was quite a bit of suspicion because there was a lot of whispering. But I think we had a, we went to homecoming or something. We both went with boys and then we had a sleepover and I guess the next day we were talking about our sexual exploits and I left the window open and when I went to school my mom went in my bedroom and was reading it and she was really I don't want to say mean short with me for about three weeks and I couldn't figure out what the hell was going on because at the same time I was having a lot of um I was fighting with my grandmother a lot, and that was hard for both of us because my grandmother was my best friend. We did everything together until, as she would say, the internet came into my life. She hates the internet now uh, because I got obsessed with it. I was teaching myself HTML, you know, like I was gone. Uh, so my mom was terse for like three weeks. And, and had she overheard you talking about you having sex with boys or with your friend with my friend i had i hadn't had sex with boys at that okay. point i didn't have sex with boys okay i was smoking. just confused because you you were dating the the you went to the went thing to the with homecoming the boys. with boys and they yeah. were just you know they were what's the, the opposite of a beard <laughs> <laughs> merkins i don't know <laughs> uh yeah we went we went to the the homecoming the dance with these guys and then they went home and we I gotcha. We had a sleepover. So my mom read all of this and lost her mind. And just, she had no idea what to do. And so she, she ruminated on it for like three weeks. And then she took me out to lunch at Bennigan's, tried to buy me a daiquiri. You know, they wouldn't. <laughs> she was like, let's get daiquiris. And they wouldn't serve me. I was 16. Uh, but she tried. I'm into that. That's kind of adorable. Yeah. You know, that she was trying to. She wanted to comfort me. Yeah. But, and I, I couldn't, it was weird. You know, I was like, what the hell is going on here? And then she drove me to this lake by our house. And I knew immediately what she was about to say. I don't know how I knew, but I knew that she knew that I was sleeping with my best friend. Um, and she told me, she said she talked to my grandfather about it. And he felt really strongly about forbidding me to see my girlfriend. And my mom was like, well... You are stubborn, and I know that that's not going to happen. But we need to, like, slow it down. And I was also forbidden to ever tell my grandmother that I was gay. Which is weird, because she was the one who took it the easiest once I did tell her. Huh. I think I told her when I was 23, and I was going to move back home to, to go to this PhD program. And I was like, hey, I have to tell you something. I'm gay. And she was like, well, yeah. And I was like, shit, I've been trying to keep this a secret for so many years. Why didn't you just tell me? <laughs> she was like, you had a lot of girlfriends. And you brought them home for Thanksgiving. And I was like, oh. So, um, yeah, I was kind of outed. Uh, but I still, my parents knew, but I still kept it a secret at school because there were rumors. And I didn't really know what to do about that. And I was in band and I was an officer. And it's funny how political band is and how conservative in a lot of ways um, and it I kept it quiet until my girlfriend graduated from high school 
and we were at her graduation party and someone had passed it. Were you older than her or younger than her? Younger. I was a year younger. Uh, Someone had passed a note that I had written to a friend that said something like, my friend knew, there were very few friends who knew, but I guess she'd kind of invalidated my relationship. And I was like, look, my relationship is as important as yours is with your boyfriend. Granted, these people have been married and have babies. They were together freshman year of high school, and they're still together. So maybe it wasn't as important, but I thought it was at the time. And someone passed this note to my girlfriend's mother at this party, and she lost her goddamn mind. Uh, She threatened to kill me. She was like, if I had a gun, I would shoot you. And immediately I'm on the phone, called my mom. I was like, you need to get here now. And she was, I don't know how she did it, but she was there within like six minutes. (laughs) And I live like 20 minutes away. So it was a crazy thing. There was lots of yelling from the front lawn to the house. And I was actually on the porch curled up in the fetal position sobbing. But that was quite the intense. Wow. What was your girlfriend doing? Was she there? She was in her bedroom sobbing, (laughs) curled up in the fetal position somewhere else. Uh, And after that, you know, our our dating became you know it was it was a big dramatic event but then it was secret you know it had to be a secret again from her mother at least but i went to a different school the next year i had already applied it was a one of those accelerated programs a dual enrollment sort of thing uh where i was going to college and high school at the same time but i can't tell you how many of our guests had that experience they graduated high school early they finished college by the time they were 19 oh god it's crazy i have a friend who who actually had her bachelor's degree by the time she was 19 and she's 24 25 now has a phd don't understand wow i'm like stop being a genius or making me look bad (laughs) i think a lot of people that that have mental illness are really fucking bright yeah k redfield jameson wrote a whole book about it what is it called (sighs) i know this it's on my bookshelf Catching, no, not Catching Fire. That's Katniss. I don't remember. Anyway, we yeah. can talk about that later. Yeah. But K. Redfield Jameson is good. Um, so you applied to this other school. So I applied to this other school, and this did actually happen before before I was threatened. Uh, but after I was threatened, it was like, okay, well, there are definitely no questions here. I'm done. I felt shameful, you know, like, even though I hadn't done anything wrong. And your friend had already graduated. Yeah, she had graduated. She was gone. There was just no, there was nothing left for me to stay for with the exception of band. But even then, I felt ostracized, and I, wasn't, I was just not going back. But the good thing about going to that other school was that I walked in, and I was like, I'm gay. You know? <laughs> there are no questions about this here. This is my girlfriend. If you don't like it, I don't care. Um, and that's kind of been the way it's been ever since because that was really painful. What did it feel like when you took ownership without apologies? I guess it was a relief. I don't I don't have too many memories of of what it felt like, but it must have been a relief, you know. She was in college at that point, so she would show up and hang out with us during our lunch break uh because it was one of these kind of alternative programs we had a lot of independence we our our attendance policy was you come in and you sign in and then you go to class 
uh, to college classes the first portion of the day. And then we had an hour for lunch. So it was very much like none of us ever went to class, you know, (laughs) we were dicking around wherever. And then we would go to our high school classes at two o'clock. But she would show up, we'd hang out. There were other gay kids. They were open about it. The year after I graduated, one of my friends was prom king. A girl was prom king. Uh, So that was kind of cool. It was a very progressive environment. Can I just tell you, as somebody who is older, how when we began to see that happen, I would have been, you know, probably 30 Mm -hmm. when that happened. And I got to see the all the time before that of not that homophobia is gone by any means but the the real dark ages of the homophobia when we began to see the newspaper stories of the woman being the prom king yeah um how cool how cool it was to to see that and to say yes we're finally we're finally starting to move forward you know that's one of the nice things about getting older is you get to see the arc of things you get to see the world change you really do and um it's it's pretty fucking great i can't imagine how good it's got to feel to be that kid that's Hmm. experiencing it inside the themselves that to, to feel that acceptance yeah, I mean, I'm even shocked. This was back in 2000, and there was quite a bit of homophobia, and then there was this acceptance. And as a gay person, seeing seeing the states just fall like dominoes now. Uh, New York was the sixth state to to have gay marriage, and I was I'm famous for my gay divorce now. But whatever. Um, it's been so cool to see that happening, and then subsequently, ever since I started doing work in suicide awareness with my project, seeing that there were no resources for suicide attempt survivors. And now suddenly people are coming out left and right. And even this conference that I'm at now, they just ratified a division of attempt survivors. And it's, there's a momentum there. So I'm seeing these two very important parts of my life just gain momentum. And it, it feels incredible. And there's so much overlap too, between I think people who've been marginalized Mm -hmm. and not wanting to live. Yeah, absolutely. And I do feel like I feel like we're in the civil rights era of mental advocacy yes. and erasing stigma and it being talked about in a way that is real and is nuanced and it isn't you know, like you read a headline and it'll say, you know, something, something, something for the mentally ill. Mm-hmm. And I never really thought about that until people started kind of raising my consciousness consciousness about it. Like saying, would it be okay to say um, something, something, something for the women? Mm-hmm. It's it's funny how how important semantics are and how often we ignore them. Like the word commit, the word commit makes me crazy. So and so committed suicide. There are just so many implications there. That's such a colorful word. Uh, suicide's not a crime. I think that maybe the only instance in which that phrase is okay to use is probably if it was someone who had a a religious belief that this is a crime, that this is a sin. Um, But we write about that. And so even that colors the idea of, of suicide as being this really bad thing. And it is a bad thing, but it's more that we want to be saving lives, you know, so that judgment, we have to get rid of the judgment inherent there. Um, And we need to use more objective language. Like the phrase I use is so-and-so died by suicide. You can't color that. 
that's just the truth. Um, but the semantics are incredibly important, and we I, don't pay attention. Yeah, I think for all all aspects of mental illness, and I'm I'm just now beginning to to realize how um, how much it 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 influences the way that it's talked about and the mm-hmm. way that it's it's viewed. And yet, I also don't want it to become one of those things that's where people feel hamstrung when mm-hmm. they're talking about it, and it becomes oh, you know, a political correctness field of landmines. Yeah, and I don't want that either. I don't want that either. But but I think there's a fine line between it being um, open and honest, and it yeah. and it being something that's misunderstood and and not given thought. Yeah, um, I've never. I've never really understood, I guess I understand the anger that people have that are left behind Mm -hmm. after somebody takes their life, but my heart always goes out to the person that was in pain because I think nobody wants to kill themselves. Yeah. That's not their first choice. Right. People want to live. Yeah. They they want to be able to enjoy their life. Yeah. It's funny to hear... You know, certainly when I was a kid, one of my first memories was of a, a friend of my grandmother's killing himself and, and hearing about how selfish that was. And then when I was, a, uh, uh, when I was in high school, I had a friend who, who died by suicide, and I remember thinking, well, fuck, that was selfish. But the thing is, is it's hard to empathize. It's hard to put yourself in those shoes. And so until you can do that, until you can try to wrap your brain around that, that kind of pain that someone must be in to decide that they're going to kill themselves... Well, fuck, it's selfish. But when you can do that, you see that it's not selfish at all. Um, it's just somebody who is in extreme, extreme pain. Yeah. And it's like say, blaming somebody for jumping out of a burning building. Exactly. It's like, yeah, I suppose they could have waited for the the, the fire department to come, yeah. but you don't know what it was like in their body, and you don't know yeah. um, the sense of urgency that they that they were feeling because... You know, not only are they dealing with that, all of those feelings, they're also dealing with the reality being warped. Yeah. And when you're suicidal, it's kind of like your body, your mind is a burning building mm-hmm. and you got to get out. And it's hard. It's hard to sit through that, to sit with it, because you do not feel like it's ever going to end. Are you comfortable talking about um, your suicide attempt? Yeah. I did it. Did it earlier this week. right? Did you? <laughs> Talk about it? Oh, I thought yeah, you meant that, you attempted it earlier this week. No. I was like, wow, you you rebound well. No, that's yeah, the, the not, that would Times, not be safe. Um, the New York Times thing. <laughs> yeah. I I don't usually, like like I said, I don't usually like to talk about the details, but what, I will. Um, what happened it was. It was a dark and stormy night. It was a dark and stormy night. Um, it's a long story, shit. So yeah, This is a podcast. <laughs> that's true. Um, I guess... What led up to it? I was stressed out. I How long ago was this? Eight years ago in June. Um, I was working 30 hours a week. I was taking a full course load uh, in college, like an over full course load. I was applying to PhD programs. Um, were you, what were you getting your degree in? Psychology. Okay. <laughs> of course. Uh, and... I had been told over and over again that I couldn't study suicide, that I couldn't study self-injury, but that's a different part of the story. Um, So I was in this relationship with this girl. She was like, I think she was my first true passionate love. 
it was one of those crazy whirlwind things. Uh, and I moved to Tennessee to be with her and I had been in Florida before, but I think about a year, a year and a half in, it started to go downhill and it, it, it had been emotionally abusive, but it became physically abusive. And it was very textbook in, in terms of how it developed. It was first, first we had the threats and then she started pushing me and then it was hitting me anywhere that, that wouldn't be visible. So she was experienced clothes. at this. She was abused as a child. Yeah. Um, obviously. And thank God, I was like three or four inches taller than her. And one day she knocked me out, just dropped me. I had a black eye and I, I went to work that day. We were, we were servers at the Olive Garden. <laughs> and she worked with me. She took classes with me and often cheated on my tests took my answers we did everything together we lived together all the same friends and i was standing there making one of the famous olive garden salads and my friend looked at me and i guess i had i don't remember if i tried to cover it up or not i must have um and he was like rough sex and it was just like i don't even know how to describe that feeling it was like it was like being punched in the gut like this is not funny um and she was on the other side of him, so she heard it too. So I don't know. Wow. I don't know what happened in her head. We never talked about that. Um, but what it was one you, of those things. What other than feeling like you've been punched in the gut? What to describe for me, like in as much detail as you can that that moment. Well, I wanted to die. <laughs> yeah. Um, you feel trapped. I felt trapped. I felt. I felt like, yeah, I was trapped. I couldn't go anywhere. I was in the middle of a shift. You know, I had to pay my bills. And Beyond just... your shift, did you feel trapped? Well, yeah. Yeah, I felt why, like... Why did you feel like you couldn't leave her? Because I you're... loved her too much. Wow. I loved her so much. And I didn't think that I could live without her. I didn't know what that meant. I couldn't I couldn't see it. Um, and to this day, I, I loved her. Um, so it's... It's a strange thing when you love someone so desperately and yet you're hurting each other because I did get to a point where I started hitting back and I'm, I'm the silliest creature. Like I'm not, I'm not going to hurt, you know, I don't, I'm not a hurtful person. I, I don't resort to violence. So in that way, having that experience, you know, it really, it made me question absolutely everything about myself. Like it was like, I didn't know who I was. And I felt worthless, um, and that made me want to die. And then I kind of, I think we did this for a year and a half. I kept making uh, ultimatums, like, we have to stop this. This has to stop. I don't know what to do. I have to leave. The abuse or the relationship? All of it. <laughs> but the abuse. I wanted to stay in the relationship because I loved her so much. But I knew that this was bad. And I didn't, I didn't know how to stop it. And it kept going. It stopped for a little while and then it got bad again. And, uh, I had a near attempt about eight months before I did actually try to kill myself, which I think had I been, had she not come home that night would have actually resulted in my death more. I'm more certain of that than, than the attempt that I did make that that would have been lethal. Um, so, yeah. Um, so you stayed with her after that first attempt where she found you? The almost attempt. The almost um, attempt. I didn't actually do anything. I, I 
the plan was that I was, I did buy the bottle of vodka. Uh, the plan was that I was going to get wasted and I was going to get in my car and I was going to drive off of something or into something. Um, I actually I hope you treated yourself to some top shelf vodka, though. I don't remember. I think it was Smirnoff. Uh, oh, you sickened me. Yeah, I know. Now, no. There's no Smirnoff <laughs> in my life. Um, Have you quit drinking? No. Oh, oh, just no low, low, uh, low grade booze. No low grade booze. I don't know. Is Smirnoff considered low grade? I don't think well, of it as top shelf. It's no Chirac or Ciroc. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I love that stuff. Go ahead. I'm bogging this fucking thing down. <laughs> So I was going to, you know, that was my plan. And it's funny because I bought this car specifically to get away from the arguments because they got so bad that I would lock myself in the bathroom and cut myself while she's in the other room ripping my shit apart. Um, I had a picture of me and Tori Amos, who's like my hero. I had one picture. It was filmed because we didn't have digital cameras yet, really. And I remember she ripped it in half and slid it under the bathroom door while I was just trying to to get away um, and hurting myself in the meantime. but So I bought this car to to be able to escape this situation. I did feel trapped. Uh, and then I was, I was going to use it to kill myself with. Uh, but she did come home that night. It was Halloween. And she came home and we went to a party, actually. And I was just a wreck, you know? Like, I don't know how no one noticed. Or if they did, they didn't say anything. But I was not okay. They probably thought you were dressed as a person on the verge of collapse. Maybe. I didn't even I didn't even dress up that year. But yeah, maybe. I did go to a Halloween party once dressed as a lesbian, so you know. <laughs> it didn't change anything. <laughs> uh, so then the actual the actual attempt was um I found out she was cheating on me about a month beforehand and and how long had you been together at that point? Almost three years. We broke up the day before our three-year anniversary. I really like... My expiration date is usually three years, so my girlfriend and I have been together for two years, and I'm like, come on. This can't happen again. Uh, because I like her. She's cool. So... Oh, your present girlfriend. My present yeah. girlfriend. She's the best thing. Um, she's going to be embarrassed. Sorry. So... <laughs> uh, yeah, I found out that she was cheating on me, and it was with someone I knew. Uh, well, we worked with her. You know, we did everything together. I don't. I don't even know how she find, found time to cheat on me. Like I don't. I have no idea how she did that, honestly. But that happened. I didn't take it well because the, we were in an open relationship when I when I was young. I was you know really open minded more so than I am now. Um, and the premise of open relationships is honesty, right? But I think she missed missed that memo, so... And she probably knew because this person worked with you guys, it might be pushing some buttons and it would probably yeah. be making you feel unsafe. That... Yeah. I, or she just didn't care. Yeah. Um, she so sounds like she had such a cruel streak in her, like she had so much yeah. anger and, and so many demons. I mean, the like the tearing of that picture. I mean, that's yeah. so... It's not even like pertinent to what your argument was about it's, oh, it's just, just like going for the out. jugular yeah yeah and it's i mean it's been eight years now since we broke up and i was so fucking mad for years and years and years and now i've gotten to a place of indifference but i can see like i did love her for a reason she was incredibly intelligent hilarious and a great writer 
So, you know, the, it, it wasn't all bad. And we had fun together. Um, and she made me laugh. She was, I thought she was a genius, you know? I wanted to have 9,000 of her babies or something, but it was just bad. It was bad for us to be together. You know, I see this a lot, and, and I just want to interrupt this for a second. I see this a lot in guests who were in abusive relationships, and that abusive person does this magnificent job of reeling that person into the, their domain, sometimes isolating them mm-hmm. from their yes. from their friends, building them up, and then with that isolation, they can then begin to sabotage their self-esteem so that they think, I need this person mm-hmm. to stay. I, I, nobody is ever going to love me. And then they can unleash the anger that yeah. has been inside them for their, their whole life. Yeah. Is that Does that ring a bell? Yeah, but also, you know, and I don't know if this is just in, in lesbian relationships. I honestly don't know much about this. But if you're abused long enough, you abuse back. And that, like I said, it just, it just shook me. Um, and it, you know, I'm still terrified of that. Like, Oh God, you know, I'm capable of this. It's, it's, it's like when you try to kill yourself, you, you cross a line. And when you've had that experience, you cross a line and, what, and you're did, always living in fear of it. What did it feel like the the first time you crossed that, that line? What happened? I don't remember. It was just a gradual kind of crossing of it. I th- I don't even know. Was I the, just know eventually you, I started hitting back. Did any part of it feel good, or was there just instant shame of how am I being dragged down to this level? Shame and just anger. Anger. Um, like it wasn't even a conscious decision to punch. It's just like, this is my body just Yeah, it was just, it, there was no thought. Yeah. yeah. It was just, this is, I can't do this. I'm I'm fighting back. And I imagine for her, it was the same thing. but Probably. About things that weren't conscious you know what i mean like yeah. where it's just it's like an explosion and she can't control her yeah her body it's funny i got an email from her for the first time in years several months ago that said something like i just want you to know that i was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder i really loved you i'm sorry i hurt you and i was shocked to get it uh i didn't respond to it <laughs> but it was it was something i don't i it didn't alleviate any of my my gross feelings about it, but it was interesting to to receive that. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, where were we? <laughs> um, so the events leading up to the oh. suicide attempt. Lots of stress, this cheating thing that happened, uh, and the lies, and I just you know lost it. I was not okay, and I wasn't sleeping. I wasn't eating. Uh, and then it was like we would break up and then we'd get back together and we'd break up. And the last time we got back together, it was under the condition that she could hang out with whoever she wanted. So <laughs> she went out this one night to hang out with this person that she had cheated on me with. And that wasn't okay with me. I lost it. Uh, because before then it had been, if we're going to get back together, you can't see these people that you were cheating on me with. Yeah, kind of. But, or was it a, I have to prove if you're going to, who you're going to hang out with? No, I don't. I think I was, I, maybe maybe I was trying to control it, but in my mind I was just yeah. hurting over it too much that I can't really remember. But it was sad because the other girl had a girlfriend too. 
and another person that we worked with. So we were two couples and we're hanging out. And I knew that my girlfriend had cheated on me with this other girl, but the other girlfriend didn't know. And I was like angry and I felt so sorry for her, but I didn't feel like I could tell her. It was just a shitty situation. Um, so yeah, one day we, I don't remember why, but we had lunch at work on an off day and we got into a fight and I kept saying, you, you can't talk to me like that. Stop talking to me like that. And she didn't stop talking to me like that. So I left. <laughs> I got in my car cause I have my car and I left. Uh, and then eventually we both ended up in the house and she was like, well, I'm going out with this other girl. So bye. And I like threw her shit on the lawn. I got a little crazy. Um, and she left and I just over the course of several hours lost it. Um, and I tried, I tried to do other things. I listened to music. I called my friend and I had her talk to me. I remember Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire was on the TV. I was trying, but I wasn't okay. I was supposed to go to my friend's party that night. She, she was underage. She wanted me to buy her liquor. And I was like, yeah, but I just couldn't, I could not think of anything other than I want to die because I don't know how to do this. I don't feel like I can live without her, but clearly living with her is not an option either. Almost like life has given me the greatest form of love, I, uh, the greatest, this amazing feeling that I want, but it's on the other side of this horrible wall that's right. filled with spikes. Yeah. And I mean, I spent the weeks leading up to that sitting on my porch. I had, you know, it was Tennessee. It was very rural. We had train tracks behind the house and I was sitting on the porch listening to these trains go by. Like, I wish I could lay down on these tracks. I don't. You know, like I would write in my journal, I don't know how to do this, like for pages. I mean, it looks, you go back and look at it, it looks nuts. Did you think that nobody was ever going to come along again that you would feel this strongly about? I don't even think I was thinking about that. It was just, I couldn't see past not being with her. Or, yeah. So, so the thought of being al with, alone, with, I guess. alone, specifically without her made life seem unlivable. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um. And I think that was also a function of the fact that I had never been single from the, since I was 15, I was in relationships for eight years. So I didn't know what that meant. Um, and now I do, <laughs> but had she begun to convince you that you wouldn't find anybody else or was that something you kind of came to on your own? I can't remember. I really don't think it was, that was about, about finding someone else. I just mm -hmm. wanted to be with her. her. Um, and by one the way, one of the, qualities of people that live with uh, borderline personality disorder is they are usually extremely bright oh yeah extremely charming um they just have a volcanic reaction when they when they yeah. feel overwhelmed and they don't understand mm -hmm. why yeah it's sad uh but she was she was great in in many ways uh i'm sure she still is so you're thinking <laughs> about laying down on the train tracks thinking about laying down on the train tracks for weeks and weeks and weeks and that night I just snapped. That was, that was the catalyst. Um, I don't know. I cut myself. I think the, the I had, a, uh, I had hurt my back a couple of weeks before that. So I had painkillers and I had a bottle of wine and I was like, well, I'm going to get obliterated and then I'm going to slip my wrists because I had been a cutter. But the difference between being a cutter and, and 
trying to make lethal cuts there there's just there's a huge difference there. there there's no comparison yeah. it's like one is wanting to relieve the pain temporarily and the mm-hmm. other is wanting to relieve the pain forever yeah and even the quality of the wounds you give yourself is different um there's there's a very ritualized controlled thing about it you're not I mean, in my case, anyway, I wasn't making deep cuts. I wanted to see a little bit of blood. I wanted it to hurt, but I was, you know, I wasn't trying to die when I had been doing that. I did that for nine years. Um, so I wanted something. I wanted something different at that point, and I had. I thought that I could do it because there had been a couple of times where I was so fucked up that I did lose control when I was cutting myself, and I have scars that that are different from the rest of them, you know, that probably needed stitches. Um, so I thought I could do it, uh, but I didn't get that far. <laughs> and I don't, again, I don't have many memories. I know the intention, but I don't know how far I got. I know that I kept calling her and calling her and calling her. And for a long time, she didn't pick up. She just turned off her phone. And then eventually she did pick up and we were yelling at each other and I was begging her to come home and she was being mean to me. And you hadn't tried it yet? This was leading up to it? Or had I th- you... I was, your... I was in the process and I you was You were like, drunk already? I don't, I, I don't even remember okay. if I got drunk. I, okay. Yeah, I really don't remember. But I, I was asking her to come home. I was, I was slowly doing this and begging her to come home. Um... I wasn't asking her to help me. I was, but I was saying, please come home, please come home, please come home. And she wouldn't. And I found out a couple of years later that she'd driven two hours away to Knoxville to hook up with her ex-boyfriend. I don't even understand why that happened. But <laughs> um, she wouldn't come home, I guess, because she was too far away. And she hung up on me at some point. And I kept calling her, calling her, calling her. And she called me back a few minutes later. And stayed on the phone, yelling and screaming at me. I'm sobbing and begging. And then my door is pounding, 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 pounding. And I, it scared me. I was already hysterical. And I was like, what the fuck is happening? Um, and they barge in my house, the police and the paramedics. And they're asking me, what's your name? What's your name? What's your name? And I was like, I couldn't, I couldn't even talk. I couldn't even tell them. Um, <laughs> so she had called them. She had called them. Um, and I actually called. I dialed my mom's number. When they came, when the police came in, and all I could say was, "Mom, the, I guess I said like the cops are here," and I handed the phone over, and she gave them all of my information. Um, and so at that point, you had cut yourself. Oh yeah. Okay. The the entire time that I was trying to call my girl, my ex girlfriend, and beg her to come back, I was cutting myself. Oh okay. I had I had uh, surface wounds all over my body, which is funny because when I was hospitalized briefly. They didn't do any kind of, they didn't look at my body. They only saw my arms. So I think that the fact that they didn't look at me is in some way what saved me from being hospitalized for longer than three hours. But, uh, so my mom gave them my information and they put her back on the phone with me. And the funny thing about that was that she was like, go with them voluntarily because if, if you don't go voluntarily they're going to handcuff you anyway and it could go on your record and you want to be a mental health professional so that's not a good thing you can't have that that stigma my mother who was like at that point not educated in mental health knew that there was a stigma there um especially among mental health professionals it's kind of the worst there and 
She said, get yourself out of that hospital as quickly as possible and lie if you have to. She wanted, she was concerned for my mental health, but she was also concerned for my future, which mm-hmm. is, you know, I definitely didn't have the forethought there. But so that's what I did. Uh, I was ambulanced to the hospital. That was weird. What'd that feel like? Shitty. Quiet. They wouldn't talk to me. Um, and it felt even worse when I got the bill. <laughs> Not cheap, I imagine. Not cheap. It was a short, expensive ride. And uh, I should take you in a stretch limo so at yeah, least right? you get your money's worth. In some states, they actually take you in a police car. They handcuff you and take you in a police car. Talk about Shaming. a lack of dignity. Yeah. yeah. Um, North Carolina is one of those states. I know that. Um, so they took me to the hospital and they didn't take my phone away, but I had no reception. And this is when we still had razors and texting wasn't even really a thing yet, but I did text my best friend and I was like, Hey, I'm in the hospital. You mean razor the phone? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Good, good clarification. Yeah. The flip phone. Um, so I'm in the hospital and I remember telling the nurse that I was terrified of needles and I wasn't covered in tattoos at this point, and they're still very different things. But she she didn't care. She completely disregarded that. She kind of treated me like a leper. She gave me a tetanus shot, and I'm crying about it. And then she was she took my blood, and I was I was laying uh, on the bed, and as she would fill up the vials, she would lay them on my stomach, and I was just so. Even now, like, it feels so gross to me because it's your own blood and, like, it's warm and, ugh, I can't. (laughs) It was a bad experience. Um, And after that, they sent someone in to do the psyche val, and I just lied. I knew what they were going to ask me. I was a psychology major. So I manipulated the system. Um, And, I, I mean, I guess we shouldn't do that, but I don't think they really cared either. They didn't know what to do with me. And there's a huge problem everywhere, all over the country, that even even if they wanted to hold me for 72 hours, there aren't any beds. We don't have funding for this stuff. So, and we didn't then. And what state were you in? Tennessee. Yeah. And I knew that because I was, uh, I volunteered with the, the crisis center. So I knew that, that a, a lack of beds was a real issue. Um, and maybe that was the reason that they they sent me on my merry way, too they signed me out to one of my friends who was drunk at a party because I was supposed to go to a party. It was her. Mm-hmm. Um, she had a designated driver, came and got me. <laughs> That's awesome. It was amazing. I think we stopped at like Taco Bell on the way home. Oh my God. That That is, we have a word on this show for moments like that. <laughs> Awfulsome. Where it's it awesome was. and awful at the same time. Yep. That is a 24 karat awfulsome moment Mm -hmm. um yeah put me in the front seat of this this tiny audi (laughs) that looked like a spaceship went to taco bell took me home to her party (laughs) to live it up no she actually she took me upstairs and tucked me into bed um and put on her sleepy time playlist so anytime now that i hear iron and wine song fever dream i think of that night but not in a bad way. I think mm-hmm. of it, it, it comforts me that someone loved me enough to take care of me. Uh, and anytime she's around and I'm telling stories like this, I point her out. She hates that. But <laughs> yeah, she she took care of me. And then I went home the next day and my girlfriend, because of her new, her new buddy that she was sleeping with, uh, she'd started taking pills, 
which was not a thing that we did together because I don't, I don't like drugs. Like I said, I grew up with a crack addict, so drugs are not a thing that I'm interested in, but she was just out of it and all of the curtains were drawn. Like it was dark. I mean, we lived in one of those wood panel departments anyway, so it was dark to begin with, but she was completely out of it. She was like, I've been looking for you since eight o'clock this morning. And I was kind of like, well, I got out of the hospital last night. You tried real hard. Uh, and then after that, we broke up. We slept together after we broke up. Yeah, I don't know. It was crazy. And you're under. That's the best sex. Yeah, it really was actually <laughs> at that at that point in my life. Um, I went to work. I gave my notice, and this was right after I had talked to my best friend. I said, "This is what happened. I don't know what to do." She sent me money, and she said, "Get in your car." And come to Texas. Um, so I did that. About a week later, I finished out my work week. And I just packed my shit and got in my car. Even that was a... I didn't want to leave. I still didn't want to leave. I remember we... My ex-girlfriend at that point, we, we went to McDonald's, had lunch together, talked and talked and talked and talked and talked, and I was supposed to leave hours earlier. And it just got to a point where... I kissed her and I literally ran out the door, jumped off my porch, got into my car and I did not get out of my car again until I was in Texas 16 hours later. Cause I just, it felt, it felt like life or death for me. Um, and so I did have a lot of friends who saved me, even though I felt incredibly isolated because I was in an abusive relationship. It was very much like, you can't tell that person you're turning them against me. So I couldn't tell anyone anything, but even with all of that, I had people who, who took care of me. You should you should tell that ex that you were so abusive to me, you made a gay person run to Texas. <laughs> uh, well, she's following me on Twitter now, even though I haven't acknowledged her. So maybe she'll hear this. Well, maybe, day. you know, maybe she's getting help <laughs> and she's managing. Um, I think she is. The borderline that, that she lives with. Because yeah. it can be managed. It absolutely can be. Yeah. Well, like, hopefully she has borderline burnout, right? That's a thing. What is that? <laughs> Apparently, you just you just lose it. You just stop being borderline. Really? That's what I heard. But I, I don't know if I believe it. You know? Yeah, it sounds to me like such an overwhelming thing. Yeah. To to live with that. Um, but I don't know. Maybe, maybe people do change. Yeah, I want that burnout. I mean, without medication, it'd be nice if my brain was oh just my like, God. "Hey, I'm good. Just kidding." <laughs> <laughs> Tired of harassing you. Yeah, I've um, done enough. So let's talk, before we wrap things up, let's talk about how you got into the advocacy for... Um, live Through This. Yeah, Live Through <laughs> This. It's, it's the name of an organization that you started. Mm. And what... No? You didn't start it? It's not an organization. It's just me. me it's a, a project. a couple of other people. It's a yeah. project. That, it's a project. Yes. Maybe it'll be an organization one day. Uh, well, I know you got a lot of people that follow you and yeah. and love what you do and are deeply touched by it. Uh, tell tell us about Live Through This. Uh, briefly, the elevator speech is Live Through This is a series of portraits and stories of suicide attempt survivors as told by those survivors. I don't really like to filter what it is that they have to say. And is it text or audio? It's text. Well, I record the audio. Uh, I publish mainly text and then I make a portrait when I'm done. So the text is generally paired with the portrait or a portion of the text it is very much curated by me um and can, i can people view it online 
Yeah, it's at livethroughthis.org. Okay, because I went to the website and I got the picture of the person and I put the cursor over it and it mm-hmm. said their name, but when I clicked on it, I, no text came up. That's weird. Maybe it was misbehaving that day. Yeah. Or maybe you were using Internet Explorer or something. No. Uh, I was using Google Chrome. Chrome, wait. No, Chrome's okay. Firefox hates the website for some reason. Firefox has problems with a lot of... Uh, Things uh, our yeah. Amazon search box doesn't come up when you use Firefox. Firefox is ridiculous. Fuck Firefox, exactly. We should have done this hour about Firefox and how bullshit Firefox. <laughs> Firefox is an asshole. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it was just misbehaving that day. But usually, if you if you click on the the little tile, you see their name, and it'll go to their page. They have their own page um, with the story, and usually it's just a portion of the story. Whatever I think is is going to resonate most with the audience. But I have been playing with things here and there. There are one or two um, of the stories where I either publish the full transcript or the audio. And I typically don't put all of it out there because, again, I don't I don't like the methodology. And these people usually do tell me, even though I don't ask. I don't say, well, how'd you do it? Mm-hmm. Um, so I usually I usually try to take that out. But if I do the full transcript or the... The audio, it comes with a, a trigger warning. Uh, but I guess the idea is to show that suicide attempt survivors really could be anybody. Uh, the stereotypes of the goth kid or the depressed person in the corner, or right now we really like to talk about how the gay kids are killing themselves or the bullied kids are killing themselves because that's trendy in the media. And it's not true it's not just them it's not the othered populations who are weak or have something wrong with them um it's very it's very often the 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 housewife who everybody thinks is perfect that has it all together that is so tired of her mask yeah you know yeah i mean it's not just her though it really is anybody it is anybody i have people on the website from age 19 to 63 right now and I just keep collecting more stories. I mean, what? It, what? It, April 2014 is where we are. So I, I've collected almost 80 stories right now, and I just keep doing it. I did 12 in Boston last month. I'm doing a ton here. Um, and it just, the more I do, the further proof I have that this is true, that it's all kinds of different people, every ethnicity, every sexual orientation, uh, every gender popular, presentation. not popular, healthy, yeah, physically healthy, physically unhealthy, yeah, yeah, everybody. Um, what have you learned uh, doing this? What insight have you gained? I've learned so much. Uh, what I've learned, the main thing I've learned is that I'm not alone, and that you're never alone. I was looking for a community, and I didn't really, I didn't conceive of it in that way initially, um, but I have given myself a community, and then. In August of last year, I realized, well, now I've got this community. I built myself a community, but how do, how do I integrate that? How do I find a way to connect all of these people? And I did that um, through a Facebook group, actually. But So now we have this closed sort of peer support group on Facebook. All of the people who have been in the project who are on Facebook are involved, and they talk freely amongst one another. Um, they don't have any rules. It's all happened very organically. They're... They self-manage it. You know, if something feels dangerous, there's always someone there to to talk about it. Um, And it's been nice to see that. And then on a larger scale, there's this this movement of attempt survivors who are into advocacy, who are coming out 
a lot of the mental health professionals are coming out of the shame closet, I like to say, um, and disclosing that they have lived experience with suicide or suicidal thoughts. And uh, there's there's momentum. It's organizing where we're saying that we want a place at the table when it comes to policymaking. Um, any kinds of decisions that might require the input of an attempt survivor uh, because we're not to be stereotyped, you know? Um, so that's, that's the nutshell version of what's going on now, but that's why the New York times piece is happening. There was a Washington post piece last week. It's just really all coming to a head and people are getting, they're getting heard for the first time. I mean, historically suicide attempt survivors have spoken under conditions of anonymity because of the stigma, because mm-hmm. of the shame. And that's a big part of my project too. If you want to be in, if you want to share your story for Live Through This, you have to agree to use your name and likeness, your full legal name and likeness, because it's important. And I know that people, people are scared, you know, Google is a powerful thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, that's one of the things that I have learned. It's, it's interesting that people will risk that in order to possibly save a life, in order for someone to to feel better, to, to identify with this story. And I do get emails from people who are like, can you forward this email to, I got one recently for Laura Carbonell. Can you just forward this to her? Because her story really resonated with me. Um, and that's, that's such a cool thing. Uh, and it's also really cool to get, to get emails from lost survivors, people who have lost a loved one saying that I, I, I really wish that this person that I lost would have seen your website. It's heartbreaking. Um, but it's got to let you know though, that that's helping prevent future ones. It's working on all the levels I want it to work on. Talk about the feeling that you get and how it helps you in your blue moments to have what I would imagine is a feeling of meaning and purpose from doing this. Um, That's hard. Uh, I don't, I haven't had a real blue moment in a while now because of my magic pill, but I, when did you start doing the, this project? 2010. Yeah, so I've been going at it for a minute. Actually, when I'm having blue moments, I feel like a hack. Like how how can I be trying to help people get through a suicidal crisis when I can't even get through my own? And that's I mean, that's how I feel. It's it's not it's not rational thinking. But you are getting through your suicidal moment because you're not attempting well, suicide. Yeah. Yeah, but you're not feeling you're not you're not seeing it that way when you're there. Sure, because um, you're judging it based on what you're feeling, not yeah. not what you're doing or not doing. Yeah, and until I actually had this larger community of of other advocates who have lived experience, I didn't know that that was a thing. That it just happens. You you have a crisis and you feel like, oh God, why am I why am I doing this thing? I can't. I'm not good enough to be doing this thing. Um, so that's. Yeah, that's what happens in the blue moments. It doesn't lift me up. It makes me feel like I shouldn't be doing it. Do you get ever get burned out? Yes. <laughs> I need it. I realized when I went to uh, San Francisco last year, I did 19 interviews in five days. And I wasn't scheduling myself things like lunch breaks. I was doing too many interviews in a day because I just wanted to, I wanted to get to as many people as I possibly could. There was a large amount of, of interest in that city specifically. Um, 
and I learned very fast what my limit is. I can only do four interviews in a day, and even then, sometimes that's pushing it, that I always need to schedule myself some time off. And afterwards, and, and you learn this in, in crisis prevention training, you really need to debrief. You need to take time away. And sense when you're being overwhelmed. Yeah. And uh, so I've been traveling a lot, but I try to take a month off from from collecting the stories because it's just... It's kind of like a minefield. I don't screen people beforehand. I say, well, if you are comfortable giving your name and and being uh, photographed and you have an attempt in your past, I want to hear your story. I don't care who you are because you're going to have something to say that that someone else is going to find important. Um, But that leaves me open to, to a lot of things that I'm not prepared for. Like I did an interview last week that I just came home reeling from and I didn't I didn't know what to do with that. And that's happened probably about three times now over the course of eighty interviews, so it's not bad, but what made you reel about it? Uh, sexual abuse. It's the 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 description of, of sexual abuse, um and the rage so many years later. The absolute rage. And you can feel it. You can feel it just coming off of a person. Um, and it, fuck, I would feel suicidal. You know, I don't know if, if I could make it through something like that. And it just, it broke my heart. And I, you know, it's, what do you say? What do you say to that? Other than I'm listening to you. I'm, I'm here with you validating your experience. But I don't know if I can help. <laughs> um... And it's actually, I think, I think those stories, you know, people feel it too when they, when they read, when they read them. There's one on the website right now that I've gotten a lot of feedback about, uh, I don't know if he's okay, is the feeling. And it's, at first I wanted it to be a really positive thing, the project, but now I want to be more neutral. I just want it to be an honest thing. I want it to be an honest depiction of what it feels like to have been suicidal, to be suicidal, to continue to struggle with these thoughts because they don't, they don't necessarily go away. There are some people who feel like, oh, I got past it and I'm fine and it's never going to happen again. But I think most of us are more like, now I have to learn to cope with these thoughts and to be safe and to not act on them. And to process anything that I might be bearing. Yeah. That's a really, really important thing. Yeah. And the, the just to backtrack a second, the thing that I would say to those of you, if somebody's confiding in you about something that happened to them, that you can't really relate to at all, the one thing that I think you can never go wrong with is, you know, reaching out, just holding their hand, looking yeah. them in the eye, you know, if you love them, reminding you that, reminding them that you love them, um, giving them a hug, mm-hmm. um, those are the things, you know, when I went through my deepest, darkest moments, those are the things that the last thing that person wants to be is, quote unquote, fixed yeah. by somebody that hasn't lived that experience. Maybe even somebody that has lived that experience. You, you just at that point, you just want another soul to, to touch yours. Yeah. You need validation. You need validation. Yeah. You just need to know that you're not alone and you're not crazy. Yeah. And that what you're feeling is okay. Yeah. And that someone's listening to you and that they want to help you. And things you should not say are, you have so much to live for. Uh, then that just makes that person feel ungrateful. Yeah. It's, it just makes it worse. So it's very much about active listening 
and giving giving the person a space to feel whatever it is they're feeling, to do it safely, and then hopefully to take advantage of resources and have have a stake in the uh, the decisions that are being made. Mm-hmm. Don't you? They don't. You don't want to have your decisions made for you. And this sounds really obvious, but don't try to get them to stop crying. Oh yeah. <laughs> Let them cry. Encourage, encourage them to let it out, to scream, whatever it is they're feeling. Encourage mm-hmm. them um, to, to just let it all hang out and let them know that you're you're not gonna you're not gonna judge them. Yeah, you're not gonna get up and and leave. Yeah, take as much time as you want. Yeah, and and them. if you feel like they need to talk to somebody who's a professional, you know, maybe encourage them. You know, say, I I, I love you and I'm and I'm here for you. Um, I only have so much that I can do to to help you and and I feel like I would be um doing you a disservice if I pretended that I know everything that you might need from this point forward yeah. um yeah, but help them find the resources. Yeah, you know, because often someone in a suicidal crisis they can't focus on that for long enough. <laughs> no, and they're gonna say no. You know, yeah. but it's if you come to them and say, "Here's what I found. Do you think any of this will work for you? If so, do you want me to go with you? How can I help you? Can I make the appointment for you? Right. Those those are are really important things mm-hmm. to think about. You know, or maybe just say to them, "What can I do to help you get help?" Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, anything you want to add, uh, Desiree, before we uh, we wrap up? Oh, God, I feel like we covered so much, so much more than I thought we would. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think that's it. I think we did good. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that we finally got to connect. And uh, thank you for your your honesty and um, sharing your experience. I think it's uh, what you, I think what you're doing is is really awesome. And I'm, I'm glad that you're starting to get um some attention from the media because it's it's uh these All press is good press right yeah i think so <laughs> i think so but uh and people can find you at live through mm-hmm. and um is there a twitter handle you want to twitter handle ltt photo i am everywhere um okay. i'm easy to find so ltt photo at desiree stage i'm on live through this has its own facebook page Really, I'm everywhere. Easy to find. Cool. Thanks, Desiree. Thank you. Many, many thanks to to Desiree. Uh, Go check out her website, livethroughthis.org. Before we read a uh, couple of surveys, not too many, I want to remind you there's a few different ways to support the podcast if you're feeling so inclined. You can go to the website, mentalpod.com, and you can make a one-time PayPal donation or one that means the world to me is becoming a monthly donor for as little as five bucks a month. Super easy to fill it out and then uh, you don't have to do anything unless you decide to cancel it or your credit card expires. And even that's very simple to do. So um, I would love it if you uh, feel so inclined to do that. And uh, lots of love to the people who have stepped forth and uh, stepped forth. My brain is so right now, it it, it feels... <laughs> If a wagon could have square wheels going through the Old West, that's that's how it feels like my brain is moving right now. Um, I don't know. I don't know what's uh, what's going on. But um, anyway, enough of that. Enough of the announcements. I don't even feel like doing the rest of them. 
and I'm not sad. So um, those of you that sometimes worry about my mental well-being, um, I'm not sad. I'm just I just just feel out of it, and I think kind of burnt out on talking about emotional stuff. Maybe maybe that's why I'm uh, enjoying the game. Just letting my my dark side. Uh, you know, I was I was saying to a friend of mine the other day about feeling some shame sometimes playing that game as the sun's coming up. You know, my wife comes into the living room to work out because she's just woke up, and there I am, and uh, and that decision when it's starting to get light out to keep playing the game. You know, for another half hour, um, as I was sharing with a friend, it's like. I've just finally in that game, I've gotten to that point where my civilization is making tanks and the civilization that's my neighbor is still producing cavalry. It's like, do I want to go to bed or do I want to stay up and bring the fucking hammer down? I like bringing the hammer down because it's, you know, it's socially acceptable letting that dark side, that dark side out. Um, I know you guys can probably relate to that. Anyway. This is a struggle in a sentence, and it's a snapshot from this person's struggle. She calls herself whatever. She's in her 40s. And uh, she writes, After years of anxious focus on my depressed mother's alcoholism, not having a moment of ease and childhood bliss because of it, she almost died and was forced to get, quote, sober. I didn't realize it then, but I was exhausted and traumatized from being the fixer, watching her almost stroke out on a plane from the DTs, feeling solely responsible for her emotional well-being and not having any voice of my own that didn't get laughed at or told to be silent. Mom got, quote, sober, but didn't extend any sort of compassion to me or my brother over what we had gone through. She did, however, make me a latch hook wall hanging as a surprise and presented it to me as a sort of consolation prize for surviving her years of drinking. It was a flowering, flowery saying, have you hugged your mom today? It never stopped being about her and her sobriety didn't last. Well, that's not surprising. It sounds like she was a dry drunk, like she was getting physically sober, but not emotionally sober. And there's a huge difference between the two. But, you know, I always say to anybody who's who uh, grew up with an alcoholic parent, man, what about what about you? How are you taking care of yourself? Because um, that wanting to fix people can be every bit as um, harmful to ourselves as as the stuff that that happened to us. I, I am barely finishing my sentences. That, squ- that square-wheeled wagon is, uh, right now it's, it's hit a big herd of buffalo. This is an awful, and that was a perfect awful moment, by the way, uh, uh, whatever. That could have easily gone in the awful moment bin. This is an awful moment um, filled out by a woman who calls herself Go Away, and she writes, I had just received the news that my mom had committed suicide. After falling to the floor and making horrific sounds I never want to make again, I looked up at my husband and asked him if I could get a puppy now. We laughed, he held me, and I cried. Is this too dark? No, it's not too dark. Not that, you know, One of the things I want this show to be is a place where we get all the stuff that's too dark other places. Um... There has to be a place that's safe to talk about the untalkable. Is that a word? It is now. Um, I think the thing that, that, that starts to wear on me, though, is 
reading the emails, reading the surveys, and all of that darkness, I think, sometimes starts to take it, it its toll. But I, I want to respond to people when they email me because I want them to know they're not alone. And I've had a, a former guest of the show, therapist uh, Susan Hagen, offer to, to help me um, reply to emails. Um, and I may take her up on, on that offer um, in the future if I feel like I'm, I'm starting to um, get burnt out because I don't ever want to stop um, doing the show. I get so much out of it, but um, square wheels. This is Struggle in a Sentence filled out by um, Gwen, and I thought this was an appropriate one to read um, given the the subject of of our episode. Um, And uh, her issues are, it's her snapshot that I want to read. Uh, Her issues are depression, anxiety, bulimia, anorexia, and um, panic attacks. And her snapshot, she writes, In March of 2014, I tried to commit suicide. I washed down a handful of trazodone with some vodka and then pulled a plastic bag over my head. Um, I had typed up a suicide note on my laptop beforehand and made a playlist of music I would listen to while I asphyxiated myself. While I laid on my bed with this bag on my head and music playing, I could feel the trazodone and alcohol course through my body, making my head spin and my limbs completely immobile. By the way, it's really hard to to type in your iTunes password when you're in that state. Uh, I thought about my dysfunctional family and the cumulative events that had happened in my 27 years of life. I was in an emotionally abusive relationship at the time. My dog had died recently, and I felt like my existence was neither important nor substantial to keep going. After being lost in thoughts for what seemed like an eternity, I felt my breathing becoming more and more shallow. My heart was beating especially hard to keep what little oxygen it was getting to all my vital organs. I could feel my mind slip in and out of consciousness. Right when I thought I was going into eternal sleep, I felt a very strong presence, as if someone was standing by my bed. It was such a strong feeling that I blindly reached out my hand, but couldn't feel anything. And then I heard my grandmother's voice in my head, clear as day, this isn't your time. You have more to do and accomplish in life. I couldn't move my mouth to speak, but in my head, I pleaded with her, begging her to let me come to the other side and be with her. Then suddenly, I felt the presence of even more people standing around my bed. I felt my head filled up with the incoherent voices of deceased family and friends, all with the firm message that I shouldn't die yet. Suddenly, my world went black, and when I woke up, it was 5 a.m., and I was still laying in bed, this time with the plastic bag in my hand. I had apparently ripped it off my head before blacking out. I felt alive for the first time, and I knew what I needed to do. I woke up that morning and walked down to my then-boyfriend sleeping on the couch and announced to him that I had tried to kill myself and that I wanted to break up with him. I have since managed to move out on my own and be more independent and focus on my work. I am still healing my emotional wounds and anger I feel towards my ex. I still struggle with my eating disorder, anxiety, depressive episodes, and panic attacks, but I don't feel as suicidal as I used to. My near-death experience with suicide was so so soul-shaking and surreal that I cannot deny its impact on me. Well, thank you so much for that. That uh, that was incredibly, incredibly powerful. Uh, And finally, I want to read this happy moment that um, 
was sent to me by a um, by a listener, and I can't remember how she wants to be referred to as, but we'll just call her D to be uh, to be safe. And she writes. As a mother in general, I'm constantly second-guessing my strengths as a parent. Am I passing my issues onto them? Are my moments of emotional weakness causing them to think they're responsible for my happiness? As a child of neglect and abuse, I'm constantly terrified I'm continuing the cycle and screwing them up in some way. Do they know they are loved? Do they feel safe? Can I protect them from the worst invisible injuries? Well, I should say, I'm positive I'm screwing them up in some way, since we all do. I'm terrified it will be something irreparable that will cloud the happy memories of childhood or hinder their abilities to achieve their dreams in adulthood. By drawing on my own past and through empathizing with your guests, I am hyper aware of the everlasting damage that can be done by parents that didn't get their own shit under control, that were emotionally unavailable, that project their problems onto their kids, that pass along unhealthy coping mechanisms, etc., Therefore, discussing our feelings and having a safe, judgment-free family unit is one of my top priorities in life. The other evening, this moment took place. I wish I could have recorded it so I can hold on to it forever, but lucky for me, I seem to have a somewhat eidetic memory, E-I-D-E-T-I-C. No idea what that means. My three-year-old daughter was at the kitchen table coloring when she spilled her glass of milk. She apologized when she did it, and I cleaned it up. No big deal. A few minutes later, she was continuing her art masterpiece, and I was at the stove making dinner. This interaction took place. Mommy, I thought you would be angry with me for spilling my milk. I'm not angry, sweetie. It's all okay. I know it was an accident. How does it make you feel to know that I'm not angry with you? She sat quietly for a few seconds, then sheepishly... Slow down, Paul. She sat quietly for a few seconds, then sheepishly says, Anxious. Oh, honey, I'm sorry you feel anxious, but I can understand why you might feel that way if you thought you were going to get into trouble. Sometimes it's hard to let go of that feeling once it starts. Is there anything I can do to help you not feel anxious? Yeah, I think I need a hug. After giving her a nice big long mommy hug, she pulled her body back from mine with the most exaggerated cheesy smile ever and pointing to the smile, she said, I feel like this now, mommy. I went to my bedroom and cried tears of joy. Not only does my girl feel safe enough to share her fears and anxieties with me at three, even when I may be part of the fear and anxiety, but she can identify her complex feelings and ask for what she needs. I'm 32 years old and still have difficulty with this. I'll be damned if I might not be a halfway decent parent after all. Oh, what a perfect note to end on. And... um Go check out Desiree's uh, website, and um, I hope if you, uh, I hope, I know I say this all the time, but I just feel like I always have to say it, that I hope if you're out there and you're stuck that you know you're not alone, and you know that we get through the most difficult shit, you know, that when it seems like there is no hope, I mean, that, you know, that, that moment I, you know, that survey I read where she had the plastic bag around her head, and, and. You know, it the difference that twenty four hours can make if you just if you just hang on and just keep moving forward and hopefully ask for help. Um, anyway, you're not alone and thanks for listening. 
Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely.